So just in beginning, I'd like to um, just comment on the quivering of my heart as I've listened to the questions and the groups and uh, such deep respect and appreciation for your practices and all of the hearts opening and the minds settling. It's quite an honor to be able to contribute just a bit to that. And um, since Kitty Sorrow peeped my game last night about Dharma talks, I guess there's nothing to lose tonight. <laughs> um, so I was um, going to offer some commentary, some observances on equanimity. And mostly that's what I'm going to be doing. But just as I listened today and, and just kept hearing compassion in this space, um, as well as metta. So there may be a little bit of that that ends up being in this as well. So from the Dhammapada, as a solid mass of rock is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise and blame. As a deep lake is clear and undisturbed, so a sage becomes clear upon hearing the Dharma. Virtuous people always let go. They don't prattle about pleasures and desires, touched by happiness and then by suffering. The sage shows no sign of being elated or depressed. So equanimity is really one of the most sublime emotions in Buddhist practice. It's the ground for wisdom and freedom and the protector actually of compassion and love. While some of us may think of equanimity as dry or neutral or cool aloofness, mature equanimity produces a radiance and warmth of being. The Buddha described a mind filled with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. So over the course of uh, my practice, um, in years gone by, I very much spent and made a commitment to really cultivating loving kindness. And then as that became kind of a, a resting place, a natural come from for me, I then turned my attention to cultivating compassion. And that was good, very helpful um, in the work that I do, especially since one of my lives is being a psychotherapist. But about two and a half years ago, there started to be a crumbling of the stability of those two particular Brahma Viharas as things became more challenging and more difficult in terms of the intensity and the consistently and what felt like a perpetual onslaught. 
you know, as um, black bodies were being assaulted with irregularity. I had to find a way to actually move through my everyday life in the face of the happenings of the world, particularly in these United States, although the Syrian crisis, I mean, just so many things, you know. And then the icing of the cake was when things turned on a dime in our political scene in this country. And no longer was what I was doing holding me in a way that allowed me to um, be well in the face of and in relationship to all the difficulties of the time. So um, awareness and Kuan Yin said, it's time for some equanimity development. <laughs> That's the one that'll stand by you uh, in these kinds of times. And particularly as I listen to some of you all's comments and questions, and especially the ones around the um, uh, perception of being overwhelmed in relationship to compassion. Um, thought this might be something you might be interested in. So I'm going to read um, a little excerpt, excerpt from one of James Baldwin's books. And just as I read it, I want to tell you the meaning of one of the words that you're going to hear towards the end of it. That word is chimera. And what it means is a thing that is hoped for, but is illusory or impossible to achieve. And he's not a self-proclaimed Buddhist or anything like that, um, although he was a brilliant, creative man. He wrote poetry and essays and was very much involved in the civil rights movement. And um, a black man uh, from the South who was also gay and living in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. So this is what he had to say. Life is tragic simply because the earth turns and the sun inexorably rises and sets. And one day, for each of us, the sun will go down for the last, last time. Perhaps the whole root of our trouble, this human trouble, is that we will sacrifice all the beauty of our lives, will imprison ourselves in totems, taboos, crosses, blood sacrifices, steeples, mosques, races, armies, flags, nations, in order to deny the fact of death, which is the only fact we have. It seems to me that one ought to rejoice in the fact of death, ought to decide indeed to earn one's death by confronting with passion the conundrum of life. One is responsible to life. It is the small beacon in that terrifying mystery from which we come and to which we shall return. One must negotiate this passage as nobly as possible for the sake of those who are coming after us. It is the responsibility of free men to trust and to celebrate what is constant 
birth, struggle, and death are constant. And so is love, though we may not always think so. And to apprehend the nature of change, to be able and willing to change. I speak of change not on the surface, but in the depths. Change in the sense of renewal. But renewal becomes impossible if one supposes things to be constant that are not. Safety, for example, or money, or power. One clings then to chimeras by which one can only be betrayed. And the entire hope, the entire possibility of freedom disappears. He wrote that in the 1960s. So equanimity, equanimity being one of the four heavenly abodes or the sublime states of mind. These four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or wise or ideal way of conduct towards living beings. They provide a context to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human brotherhood against the forces of egotism. The Brahma Viharas are incompatible, are incompatible with a hating state of mind. They are called abodes, Vihara, because through practice they become the mind's constant dwelling places where we feel at home. They hopefully will not remain merely places of rare and short visits, soon forgotten. In other words, our minds should become thoroughly saturated by them. They can become our inseparable companions and we can be mindful of them in all our common activities. As the Metta Sutta, the Song of Loving Kindness says, when standing, walking, sitting, lying down, whenever they feel free of tiredness, let them establish well this mindfulness. This, it is said, is the divine abode. So these four abodes, metta or loving kindness, karuna or compassion, mudita or sympathetic joy, Anupeka, equanimity. They are practiced as non-exclusive and impartial, not bound by selective preferences or prejudices. A mind that has attained the boundlessness as the Brahmaviharas will not harbor any national, racial, religious, orientation, gender, or class violence and hatred. 
until we are practiced to the degree where we are abiding in the heart naturally with that mental attitude, it is not easy for us to affect and boundless applications by a deliberate effort of will and to avoid consistently any kind or degree of partiality. To achieve this, in most cases, we have to use these four qualities not only as principles of conduct and objects of reflection, but also as subjects of methodical meditation. That meditation is called Brahmavihara Bhavana, the meditative development of the sublime states. The practical aim is to achieve, with the help of these sublime states, those high stages of mental concentration, meditative absorption, that we have been working with all along in this retreat. Generally speaking, persistent meditative practice will have two effects. First, it will allow these four qualities to sink deep into the heart so that they become spontaneous attitudes which are not easily overthrown. Second, it will bring out and secure their boundless extension, the unfolding of their all-embracing range. The ultimate aim of attaining these Brahma-Vihara concentrated states is to produce a state of mind that can serve as a firm basis for the liberating insight the liberating insight into the true nature of all phenomena as being impermanent, liable to suffering, and unsubstantial. A mind that has achieved meditative absorption induced by the sublime states will be pure, tranquil, firm, collected, and free of selfishness. That mind will thus be well prepared for the final work of deliverance from suffering, which can be completed only through the establishment of insight. Methodical meditative practice will help love, compassion, joy, and equanimity to become spontaneous. It will help make the mind firmer and calmer in withstanding the numerous irritations in life that challenge us to maintain these four qualities in thoughts, words, and deeds. In addition, when one's conduct is increasingly governed by these sublime states, the mind will harbor less resentment, tension, and irritability our everyday life and thought has a strong influence on the meditative mind. Did you know that? <laughs> it is only if the gap between them is persistently and consistently narrowed that there will be a chance for steady meditative deepening and growth leading us towards freedom. Tanissa Robiku says, meditative development of the sublime states will be aided by repeated reflection upon their qualities, the benefits they bestow, and the dangers from their opposites. As the Buddha says, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and incline. 
it is easy enough to be pleasant when life flows along like a song. But the person worthwhile is the person who can smile when everything goes dead wrong. Ella Wilcox. So the definition of equanimity, I have the same passion for understanding how words are used and what they mean in English as Tanissa Rankitasaro have in Pali. <laughs> so I looked up uh, equanimity and uh, this is what uh, it is said equanimity means in the English language. Evenness of mind, especially under stress, balance. Both equanimity and equal are derived from equus, a Latin adjective meaning level or equal. Equanimity comes from the combination of equus and animus, which is soul or mind. In the Latin phrase, equo anima, which means with even mind. Interesting, huh? Some of the synonyms for equanimity, serenity, tranquility, calm, composure, patience, placid, steadiness, and presence of mind. Equanimity, when the mind is unperturbed by whatever experience is arising. Equanimity refers to a balance in the mind called neutrality of mind. Literally, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated it as there in the middleness between extremes. The quality of evenness speaks to how it functions. When this, mindless, when this middleness is cultivated, it brings about an unshakable quality of mind. There is tremendous strength in that. Just think about how you engage in your lives, how you engage with the culture and the society, and being able to um, allow all of that to be with this kind of strength of mind. Equanimity as a divine abode is impartial. Equanimity's ability to hold all equally. It gives the other Brahmaviharas their boundless capacity. Equanimity is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states, but this should not be misinterpreted or misunderstood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love, compassion, and sympathetic joy, or that it leaves them behind as inferior. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade perfect equanimity. You know, this, um, another iteration of this retreat, when I, talk, when I taught with Nisara and Kittisaro, initially it was called an integrated awakening. And I, I really, really love that title. Um, and I've used it in some of the small groups that I've been with because it very clearly to me personifies and explains what we've been up to this week. And not only what we've been up to this week, but the, the um, most effective, efficient um, manifestation of the practice in terms of the integration of heart and mind. The interrelations of the four sublime states. 
unbounded love guards compassion against turning into partiality, prevents it from making discriminations by selecting and excluding, and thus protects it from falling into partiality or aversion against the excluded side. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fever, fervor, sorry, or maybe fever, I don't know. <laughs> For fervor too, transformed and controlled is part of perfect equanimity, strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from forgetting that while both are enjoying or giving temporary and limited happiness, there still exists at that time most dreadful states of suffering in the world. It reminds them that their happiness coexists with measureless misery, perhaps at the next doorstep. It is a reminder to love and sympathetic joy that there is more suffering in the world than they are able to mitigate. That after the effect of such mitigation has vanished, sorrow and pain are sure to arise anew until suffering is uprooted entirely at the attainment of Nibbana. Compassion does not allow that love and sympathetic joy shut themselves up against the wide world by confining themselves to a narrow sector of it. Compassion prevents love and sympathetic joy from turning into states of self-satisfied complacency within a jealousy-guarded, petty happiness. Compassion stirs and urges love to widen its sphere. It stirs and urges sympathetic joy to search for fresh nourishment. Thus, it helps both of them to grow into truly boundless states. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolent or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world in order to be able to stand the test by hardening and strengthening itself. Sympathetic joy holds compassion back from becoming overwhelmed by the sight of the world's suffering, from being absorbed by it to the exclusion of everything else. Sympathetic joy relieves the tension of mind, soothes the painful burning of the compassionate heart. It keeps compassion away from melancholic brooding without purpose, from a futile sentimentality that merely weakens and consumes the strength of mind and heart. Sympathetic joy develops compassion into active sympathy. Sympathetic joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the enlightened one, a smile that persists in spite of the deep knowledge of the world's suffering, a smile that gives solace and hope, fearlessness and confidence 
Wide open are the doors to deliverance. Thus it speaks, thinking of the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, who are always smiling and laughing with all that they hold. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three sublime states. It points out to them the direction they have to take and sees to it that the direction is followed. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity being a vigilant self-control for the sake of the final goal does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results, forgetting the real aims we have to strive for. Equanimity in its meaning of even-mindedness gives to love an even, unchanging firmness and loyalty. It endows it with great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even, unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair, which confronts boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. Can you hear the interplay of the Brahma Viharas and how no one of them is ever more necessary or useful than the other, but by integrating them um, and really resting in this place of integration of the heart, and the mind, it provides us really with the tools to move through all of what we've been talking about, all of what you've been experiencing, all of what you've been seeing. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. But in its perfection and unshakable nature, equanimity is not dull, heartless, or frigid. Its perfection is not due to an emotional emptiness, but to a fullness of understanding, to its being complete in itself. Its unshakable nature is not the immovability of a dead cold stone, but the manifestation of the highest strength. The mind infused with equanimity is unshakable because it is immutable. It is immutable because it clings to nothing. Says the master from the Udana Sotas, for one who clings, motion exists. But for one who clings not, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. 
Where no coming nor going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. Where neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This, verily, is the end of suffering. Equanimity or evenness of mind when things are going well, there is not the experience of wild elation. When things are not going well, there is no depression. Equanimity is an impartiality towards all phenomena, treating all phenomena equally, like the sun shines on the earth. The sun does not choose to shine upon some things and not upon others. It shines upon all things equally, even when there's clouds. This factor of equanimity is acceptance and receptivity towards all objects. So that was equanimity in the context of the Brahma Viharas. But equanimity is also a factor of enlightenment. Once when the Buddha was living at Rajagaha, the venerable Mahakasapa, who was living in Pipafali cave, became very ill. In the evening, the Buddha left his solitude to pay a visit to the venerable Mahakapasa. After taking his seat, the Buddha said, how is it with you, Kasapa? How are you bearing your illness? Are your pains decreasing? Mahakasapa replied, Lord, I am not bearing my illness well. My pain is very great and it shows no sign of decreasing. Then the Buddha said, Kasapa, I have taught seven factors of enlightenment. When these factors are cultivated and carefully developed, they lead to realization and perfect wisdom. In other words, to Nibbana. What seven, the Buddha continued, mindfulness, investigating into phenomena, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Hearing these words, Kasapa rejoiced. Oh, blessed one, he said, these seven are indeed factors of enlightenment. I welcome the utterance of the worthy one. Then and there, Maha Kasapa rose from his sickness and his ailment vanished. That's pretty cool. <laughs> we can continue the forward movement towards freedom by developing the seven mental factors. When these mental factors of mind are cultivated and become mature, our minds become liberated from all kinds of bondage, from all kinds of suffering. As our meditation deepens and the fetters subside, these seven qualities naturally arise. These are the qualities of cultivation that propel the forward movement to freedom. There are three arousing factors, three calming factors, and the factor of mindfulness is neutral. 
mindfulness or sati, the quality of noticing, of being aware of what is happening in the moment. This is achieved through working with the four foundations of mindfulness. Sound familiar? Arousing, investigation of phenomena, wisdom factor, seeing anicca, anatta, and dukkha, seeing how the mind-body operates, not with thoughts and analysis, but with a silent and peaceful mind. When investigation is cultivated, it is seen that everything in our mind and body is in a state of flux, impermanence. Energy or effort, virya. Energy has to be aroused and in the service of the system to work and practice with the mind. I think we've all been working with that quite a bit this week. Rapture or joy, intense interest in an object, pity. An intense interest in the object, a joyous interest in what is happening. Rapture is a spaciousness in the mind born of detachment, free of grasping and clinging or identified claim. The calming factors, tranquility, when all the passions are subdued, a cooled out mind manifests, not burning with lust or anger. Concentration or samadhi, the ability of mind to stay one pointed on an object, to stay steady without flickering or wavering. Concentration gives strength and penetrating power to the mind. There actually are two kinds of concentration. The one which many of you came into this retreat knowing, the one which is developed by focusing on any single object and developing concentration to the point of absorption into it. This kind of concentration provides the basis for many psychic powers. It's referred to as equanimity based on unity. But remember now what I read when I gave my other Dharma talk, where Buddha talks about he only taught that which was useful towards moving us to freedom and nibbana, even though he knew a whole lot of other stuff like that. <laughs> the second kind of concentration, or the other form of concentration, is the one we cultivate for developing insight, and is called momentary concentration. This is indicative of a mind that is steady and one-pointed, but on changing objects. It is this concentration that we've been cultivating throughout the entire retreat, and it is this form that, along with the other factors, lead to freedom. The seventh factor, equanimity, evenness of mind. Equanimity as a quality of balance. Equanimity is an impartiality towards all phenomena, treating all phenomena equally. One kind of reflection which cultivates the factor of equanimity 
especially in dealing with others, is remembering that all beings are the heirs, the inheritors of their own karma. And I'm using karma to mean cause and effect. That's how I'm uh, engaging it in this moment. When we see beings in great happiness, we can appreciate and find joy in their happiness, which is mudita, but with an equanimous mind, knowing that they are reaping the fruits of their own past deeds. Or when we see beings in suffering, we can feel compassion and work to alleviate their suffering, but with an evenness of mind. When the mind becomes aware on a microscopic level of the instantaneously changing processes, it is this factor of equanimity which keeps everything in balance and in perfect poise. So there's this um, list which makes up what's called the eight worldly dhammas or conditions or concerns. These conditions, though, are inconsistent and impermanent, but we all experience them to one way or another at some point or many points in our lives. Gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. Each of us has touched or been touched by the eight worldly vicissitudes. The factors of the endlessly changing conditions of gain and loss praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. When we cultivate and develop equanimity, we can move through the waves of these vicissitudes with balance and ease. When we remain unmoved in the face of those who praise and blame, we remain able to seek the welfare of both. And this word balance, which I've used a couple of times, you know, I, I'm a visual person. A number of you commented on um, last night when Kitasaro did the piece with the bell. And, um, you know, so much of this teaching is coming through audio learning, but some of us are really visual learners. And so this word of balance, the, the two visuals I kind of are helpful for me in terms of understanding really this concept of balance in my body is that. Um, I think most of you, I don't think there's anybody in here that's so young that you haven't seen a seesaw. I know they don't have them so much in the playgrounds anymore, but I think everyone knows what a seesaw is. So, you know, the thing about riding a seesaw is that in order to maintain the balance of it, you're constantly shifting and moving depending on many conditions, who's on the other end, how long their legs are, how short your legs are, whether you're wide, whether you're thin, you know, all of these conditions that go into um, needing to find a way to um, equalize the two ends so that the seesaw can stay in the middle. So that's one of the ways that I like to think about balance because what it speaks to is the continued um, effort and energy that has to be engaged in order to sustain that particular perspective and um, way of holding and being in the world. Uh, the other visual that I find really helpful in terms of balance is um, a scale. You know, um, uh, used to have those big scales in, in uh, meat markets, of course, then there's the weight scale that you step on. Um, you know, and although it doesn't balance to zero, 
in order to find out really the weight that you are, the scale does like this. And then at some point it lands and then you pretty much can be happy or sad <laughs> about what the number is that's there. But before it lands on that number, it shifts around and moves around to find the balance so that it can give you exactly the information that you're looking for. So, um, hmm. non-preferential awareness supports understanding and insight into the three characteristics, impermanence, dukkha, and the truth of selflessness. Practicing the equanimity of non-preferential awareness supports the developments of these awakening factors. Then there's equanimity as a parami. So are you starting to hear how important this equanimity thing is in what we're practicing? The 10 perfections which arise naturally um, over the course of a maturing practice and are a way to um, uh, uh, kind of take the temperature of how one might be doing as we're moving along this path towards freedom. Our generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy or strength or diligence, patience, truthfulness, resolve, loving kindness, and equanimity. So when you start seeing that going on in your life, when, when any of these 10 qualities, uh, you can point to them or you can feel them or you have that as your come from place, you can pretty much, um, um, pretty much say that you're starting to see the flowering of your effort and your time as you engage with your practice. Patience and equanimity are considered the mainstays of support for the development and practice of all the other paramis. Only when we have set ourselves up with patience and equanimity, if we are patient and we develop this quality of impartiality, all the rest will follow. A poem by Lynn Unger the way it is. One morning, you might wake up to realize that the knot in your stomach has loosened itself and slipped away, and that the pit of unfilled longing in your heart had gradually, and without your really noticing, been filled in, patched like a pothole, not quite the same as it was, but good enough. And in that moment, it might occur to you that your life, though not the way you planned it, and maybe not even entirely the way you wanted it, is nonetheless persistently, abundantly, miraculously exactly what it is. So... How does one go about strengthening equanimity? Forgo attachment. Do what you do with full commitment, but the outcome is beyond your control. When we act without attachment to the outcome, we allow our minds to remain peaceful 
and undisturbed, no matter how things unfold. Associate with wise and equanimous people. <laughs> Practice it as a Brahma Vihara. Practice wise attention and continuous mindfulness. In our meditation practice, we practice inclining the mind towards equanimity and not being seduced by the pull of pleasant feelings. We cultivate a balanced mind, having an impartiality that embraces all. There is no higher happiness than peace. The Buddha and the experience of equanimity gives us a taste of this peace. Equanimity is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. Looking at the world around us and looking into our own heart, we see clearly how difficult it is to attain and maintain balance of mind. Joseph Goldstein in his book, Mindfulness, Looking into life, we notice how it continually moves between contrasts. Rise and fall, success and failure, loss and gain, honor and blame. We feel how our heart responds to all this with happiness and sorrow, delight and despair, disappointment and satisfaction, hope and fear. These waves of emotion carry us up and fling us down. And no sooner do we find rest than we are in the power of a new wave again. How can we expect to get a footing on the crest of the waves? How can we erect the building of our lives in the midst of the ever restless ocean of existence, if not on the island of equanimity? We have to understand that the various experiences we undergo result from our karma, cause and effect, our actions in thought, word, and deed performed in this life and perhaps in earlier lives. Karma is the womb from which we spring and whether we like it or not, we are the inalienable owners of our deeds. But as soon as we have performed any action, our control over it is lost. It is forever remains with us and inevitably returns to us at our due heritage. Nothing that happens to us comes from an outer hostile world far into ourselves. Everything is the outcome of our own mind and deeds. So I'd like to make the distinction here that um, Bad things happen to people which don't have anything to do with karma or your individual karma. However, where we have the possibility of influencing the karma that we create moving forward is how we respond to those difficult and challenging things that can happen to us. Power and domination whether on the individual or collective level, war, childhood abuse, domestic violence, enslavement, the Holocaust, the Japanese internment, are all 
are all reactions to greed, aversion, and delusion. You know, since uh, this is my history, the people that I come from in terms of chattel slavery in the United States, you know, what we don't remember and what has been washed away over time is the fact that there's nothing intrinsically about peoples of African descent that would have set them up to be enslaved. There's nothing about that group of people of which I am part that inclined us towards being enslaved. But from the perspective of the people who enslaved us, it was purely a decision based on economics, purely a decision based on greed, purely an understanding in terms of the investment return that black people, Africans, lived in a hot place. They were acclimated to living and working in heat. And most of the places where people were enslaved, although I do understand there was a little bit of it going on here in Massachusetts, but the predominant states and places, countries where enslavement um, was the vehicle for free labor were in places that it was hot. In the United States, it was the South. And there was the Caribbean islands much of South America. And through the process of the wisdom of the enslavers, um, this country became rich because of free labor for many, many years. So in terms of the collective karma of that, it had nothing to do with being of African descent or being black. It had to do with greed. And most, if not all, of the other things that I mentioned and the myriad number of other ways arise out of that same misunderstanding and misperception that comes from an unskillful, clouded mind. So where we get to inter intervene and cause a different happening in our lives, may not be at the point or the place of trauma, but comes from once there's the resolution of the trauma, being able to make decisions, being able to make choices, um, being able to choose the people that we're in relationship and engage with, live in the places that feed us and take care of us in terms of our well-being, that's where we have the opportunity to change the course of our karma. Because this knowledge, it frees us from fear when in everything that befalls us we only meet ourselves, why should we fear? Particularly important for these times and days. All the various events of our lives, many but not all being the result of our deeds, will also be our teachers even if they bring us sorrow and pain. So as we've been working this week to cultivate the capacity to be with the unbearable, you could see what's possible coming out of that as you cultivate, as we cultivate that capacity 
It really sets us up to then go and design lives that are engaged with um, love, love, love. The Dharma is not something you can explain or give. It is something to be known within yourself. You have to have the realizations in your own mind. We need to practice and realize. Then the marvelous will arise and be known by our own minds. There is a story in the scriptures of the suttas of people asking the Buddha about nirvana. When he refused to elaborate on it, they began to say it was because he did not know. How could the Buddha not know? The point being that such a thing is to be realized by each of us. The other night I was saying this is one of the, my favorite aspects of this path. Those who believe others are said to be by the Buddha to be foolish. He said to listen to things and then contemplate to experience the truth of them. Listen without denying, receive the words, not merely believing, but investigating the meaning. It is not so much a matter of believing or not believing. The practice of Dharma is leading to the point of letting go but we must have knowledge of things according to the truth in order to let go. When real knowledge arises, there will have been endurance in the practice of the Dharma. There will be enthusiastic, consistent effort. That was Ajahn Chah's words. So to end, Again, Joseph Goldstein's in the room. Great knowledge is all-encompassing. Small knowledge is limited. Great words are inspiring. Small words are chatter. When we are awake, our senses open. We get involved with our activities and our minds are distracted. Sometimes we hesitate, sometimes underhanded, and sometimes secretive. Little fears cause anxiety, and great fears cause panic. Our words fly off like arrows, though we knew what was right and wrong. We cling to our own point of view as though everything depended on it. And yet, our opinions have no permanence. Like autumn and winter, they gradually pass away. We are caught in the current and cannot return. We are tied up in knots like an old clogged drain. We are getting closer to death with no way to regain our youth. Joy, sorrow and happiness, hope and fear, indecision and strength, 
humility and willingness, enthusiasm and insolence. Like music sounding from an empty reed or mushrooms rising from the warm dark earth continually appear before us day and night. No one knows from whence they come. Don't worry about it. Let them be. How can we understand it all in one day? Thank you for your listening. Let's sit for a few moments. A Brave and Startling Truth by Maya Angelou. We, this people on a small and lonely planet, traveling through casual space, past aloof stars, across the way of indifferent suns, to a destination where all signs tell us it is possible and imperative that we learn a brave and startling truth. And when we come to it, to the day of peacemaking, when we release our fingers from fists of hostility and allow the pure air to cool our palms, when we come to it, when the curtain falls on the minstrel show of hate and faces sooted with scorn are scrubbed clean. When battlefields and coliseum no longer rake our unique and particular sons and daughters, up with the bruised and bloody grass to lie in identical plots in foreign soil. When the rapacious storming of the churches the screaming racket in the temples have ceased. When the pennants are waving gaily, when the banners of the world tremble stoutly in the good, clean breeze. When we come to it, when we let the rifles fall from our shoulders and children dress their dolls in flags of truce, when landmines of death have been removed and the aged can walk into evenings of peace, when religious ritual is not perfumed by the incense of burning flesh, and childhood dreams are not kicked awake by nightmares of abuse, when we come to it, then we will confess that not the pyramids, with their stones set in mysterious perfection, nor the gardens of Babylon hanging as eternal beauty in our collective memory, 
not the Grand Canyon, kindled into delicious color by western sunsets, nor the Danube flowing its blue soul into Europe, not the sacred peak of Mount Fuji stretching to the rising sun, neither Father Amazon nor Mother Mississippi who without favor nurture all creatures in the depths and on the shores. These are not the only wonders of the world. When we come to it, we, this people on this minuscule and guiltless globe, who reach daily for the bomb, the blade, and the dagger, yet who petition in the dark for tokens of peace. We, this people on this moat of matter, in whose mouths abide cankerous words, which challenge our very existence. Yet, out of those same mouths come songs of such exquisite sweetness that the heart falters in its labor and the body is quieted into awe. We, this people on this small and drifting planet, whose hands can strike with such abandon that in a twinkling life is sapped from the living. Yet those same hands can touch with such healing irresistible tenderness that the haughty neck is happy to bow and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn that we are neither devils nor divines. When we come to it, we, this people, on this wayward floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth, a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety, without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous, the true wonder of this world. That is, when and only when we come to it.